Good morning. My name is Riley Truman, and I have been attending Spencerville for two years now, and I am in the eighth grade. When I first heard that middle school Sabbath was coming up and that they needed three people to preach, part of me wanted to do it, but I'm an introvert. And when I say I'm an introvert, I mean talking to people I know can sometimes scare me. But for some reason, when I heard Miss Williams say they were looking for one last person, I really wanted to go, and I felt God calling in my heart me a volunteer. And I'm happy to stand before you today to tell you the message that God has placed on my heart. Today, I'm going to be talking about Timothy and how he gave us an example to live out our calling. But first, I want to pray. Dear God, thank you for calling each of us to serve you. Please bless the words I am about to speak and help them come from you and be a blessing to all who hear them. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take you back five years ago. I was so excited because I could finally be a part of Pathfinders. I was so excited to be with my friends and get new honors, and I had these really amazing directors. Not that I'm biased or anything because they were my parents. But besides that, I was excited to be a part of Pathfinder Bible Experience. That year, we studied Exodus, and along with my sister and two of our friends, we made it to a final division level. While memorizing chapter after chapter, I would hear adults say what a great influence we were to other adults. Not many people memorize a chapter, let alone multiple. The following year, I was assigned two whole books to memorize, Philippians and 1 Timothy. I was very overwhelmed at times, and I wondered why I was doing this. As I read through Timothy, I learned more about him. I realized I identified with him a lot, but I also saw him as a good role model. Timothy was a young person who was raised in a good, solid home and felt called to let others know about Jesus. Paul described him as a bit timid and reserved. However, when Timothy was passionate about something, nothing really could stop him. Paul saw this and invited him to be a co-worker with him and travel and preach together. Paul mentored him and helped him grow in his ability and his calling. 1 Timothy 4.12 shares with us some practical ways we can live out our calling like Timothy did. His mentor, Paul, encouraged him to set an example in five specific ways. The verse says, do not, look anyone, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Today, I want to take these five areas and be an example like Paul encouraged Timothy to be. We'll start with setting an example in speech. Would your coworkers feel that after being with you, they were inspired to be better people? Do your classmates trust you? As Christians, we should be encouraging each other and not gossiping about each other. Are you taking his name in vain? Are the stories we tell and the words we say any different from those that the world says? God is calling us to make everything that comes out of our mouths be something that we would not be embarrassed to say in front of Jesus' face. What does in conduct mean? As I studied, I realized I didn't really know what conduct meant. So I did what anyone else would do, and I Googled it. Conduct is defined as, I quote, a moral or a mode or standard of personal behavior, especially based on moral principles. Those principles to us are found in the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Bible. We should not cheat, steal, or covet. We should show honor to our parents, classmates, co-workers, and families. Are we showing love to all people? Paul encouraged Timothy to show love to all people and set an example in love. There are times when it's hard to love people. I know, I have two sisters. But Christ wants us to love others like he loved them. 
He hates sin, but he still loves us. He wants us to do the same. Show love, even when people don't deserve it. After all, how many times have we been shown love when we don't deserve it? Setting an example in faith means living your faith out loud. It doesn't mean condemning others for their beliefs. It means having a time each day where you are connected to God and then encouraging and praying with others. It means sharing your testimony of how God is working in your life and calling others to follow Jesus and share their own testimonies. Practicing the other four parts of this challenge are ways we can show our faith in real life. Lastly, God asks us to be pure. What are you putting in you? What are you eating, watching, or reading? Christ wants you to keep your mind as clean as possible so that when he calls you, you can hear his voice and respond. Don't let the stuff of the world cloud your mind. Timothy was called to share the love of God, and he did that through practical examples and not just through sermons. However, the same call has been given to each of us. It doesn't matter your age, gender, race, or height. This calling is for every Christian. He wants you to live out your calling so the world can see what he can do through you. So are you willing today to take the challenge that Paul gave Timothy? Will you show the love of Christ in your speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity? I hope you will take this calling given you today that was written almost 2,000 years ago and ask God to help you apply it to your life. Um, hello, my name is Michaela Kopic, and I'm in eighth grade. So when we were first given the topic, which is the call, um, I went through a bunch of different things I could write this on, and I decided that the question I was going to try and answer was, how does God call us? And I found three stories that I think might help answer it. So the first story is the story of Ruth. And Ruth probably is not the first person you think of when you think of someone who was called in the Bible. But I think she's a great example because she shows a few things. First of all, she was not an Israelite. A lot of the people in the Bible who were called were Israelites and from a very certain place. And Ruth was a Moabite. She, um, she, oh, she married into Naomi's family who had come from uh, Naomi's homeland to um, Moab. So, and her sons ended up marrying two Moabite women. Uh, but soon after, uh, both her sons and her husband died, and um, it, Ruth uh, Orpah, which was her sister-in-law, and Naomi were the only ones left. So Naomi decided that she wanted to go back to her home to try and find something to hold on to. And she told her daughters-in-law to stay and to try and find a new life back in Moab. She they could probably find a new husband and have a very stable life back in Moab. And one of the daughters-in-law, Orpah, she decided that she was gonna stay, but Ruth, uh, Ruth decided that she wanted to go and stay with Naomi. And I just want you to think about something for a second. Naomi has literally nothing. Her husband's dead. She's going back to where she's originally from to try and find something. She has practically no money, and she has really no way of taking care of Ruth. But 
she, Ruth doesn't expect to be taken care of. She wants to take care of Naomi. And I feel like sometimes we expect God to call us to do something super grand, like, I don't know, go to the other side of the world and do something uh, for people in Africa, which I'm not saying is not a call. That's definitely one way God can call you. But in this case, Ruth was called to just take care of her mother-in-law. She was called to do something small, but because she answered God's call, God blessed her. And by going, to, uh, by going with Naomi, she ended up meeting Boaz. And uh, she had a son with him, and her, her son ended up being the like, grandfather or great-grandfather of David. And because she listened to um, what God was asking her to do, which is just to take care of her mother-in-law, she ended up becoming one of the most famous families in all of the Bible. She became part of the lineage of David and the lineage of Jesus. So my second story is the story of Samuel. And this is probably the one, one of the ones you hear most when you hear about the call because Samuel was literally called by God. God called out to him and Samuel did not answer for a really long time actually. Um, Samuel did not recognize God's voice for several times and he just kept going to Eli. And I feel like sometimes God can call us again and again and again in a seemingly obvious way, but we don't recognize it, and we keep going to other things, uh, trying to figure out why exactly um, we hear this voice, or we feel something, or we just keep experiencing this thing. And we don't, sometimes we don't recognize it at all. In the story of Samuel, Samuel wasn't even the one who realized that he was being called by God. It was his mentor, Eli. Eli was the one who uh, told Samuel that next time he heard this voice, he should uh, go and answer it and say, um, your servant is listening. And Another thing I want to focus on in the story is that God didn't stop after one or two tries. He kept calling Samuel until Samuel answered him, and he could tell Samuel what he wanted him to do. And just like um, us, some, just like God keeps calling us when, we're, uh, when we don't recognize his call uh, for like the second or the millionth time, depending on how long it takes, uh, takes us to recognize God's call. But God, God wants us to answer his call. And he wants us to answer his call because God blesses those who answer his call. Um, God, God wants to bless us and he, wants, and he wants us to try and spread his word. So he, he blesses those who answer his call. Um, so my third story is one about me. So I really hate speaking in front of people. I hate it a lot. Um, and there are a lot of people in this room right now, so I'm kind of nervous. But <laughs> sometimes God calls us to do something that really scares you. And right now, I'm literally shaking. But <laughs> um, 
I, I'm trying to do my best and share what God has told me to do. And sometimes God calls you. Sometimes God calls you to do really scary things. And um, if you answer the call, then he'll help you not feel so afraid. Um, after, during first service, I, I made a lot of mistakes during my thing, and afterwards, a lot of people came up to me and told me that I did a really good job, and I, um, that made me feel really good, and I'm a lot more confident now. So, again, God blesses those who answer his call. Thank you. <laughs> Good morning, church. Happy Sabbath. My name is Armando. I'm in the eighth grade, and I've attended Spencerville for four years now. According to MoneyGram, more than 60% of Americans have been the victim of an online scam. I haven't personally, but I've been in enough situations where I was forced to put into question my trust in someone or something. In the modern world, we tend to want proof or assurance in making decisions. Have you ever felt the guidance of the Holy Spirit pushing you to make a certain decision, or even just an encounter with the Holy Spirit in general? It's really humbling and inspirational to feel that divine presence in us. I'm focusing today on the story of Gideon and how that relates to hearing God's voice. All right, please turn with me to Judges 6.11. While you're finding that, just a little background. The story of Gideon is found in Judges, which is filled with stories of surprise, surprise, Israel's judges. Basically what's happening in this book is the children of Israel will ask God for help. So he'll send prophets and judges to deliver them and warn them. They'd enjoy safety for a little while, but then they'd turn away from God, kill all the prophets, and then get in trouble again. Our story starts at the stage of the cycle where Israel is hiding from the Midianites and asking God for his help. Insert Gideon, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. I love how Gideon is just hiding in a winepress, and then the angel calls him a mighty man of valor. The ironing that is just astounding. Anyway, moving on to verse 13. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So then Gideon responds, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. See, this is the first time that Gideon has asked for hope and assurance in the mission that he was called to do. 17. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is, who you, that it is you who talks with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. 
So then Gideon prepares some food for the angel, and then the angel burns it up as a sign that he is an angel. <laughs> so this is the second time that Gideon had actually asked for proof of something. I mean, I'd probably ask for proof if somebody just came up to me and claimed that they were an angel too. Oh, and by the way, unless you're an angel, don't burn up food that somebody else gives to you. <laughs> Skipping to verse 25. Now it came to pass that the same night the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord said, said to him. And the men of the city, Gideon was afraid of them. So he did it by night. He just tore down his father's altar to Baal and then replaced it with an altar to God. That marks some big progress, considering that just a few hours ago he was hiding in a wine press. Skipping to verse 36. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that it is you who will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. He rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together and wrung out the dew from the fleece in a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but just let me speak. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so on that night. It was dry in the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. There's the third time that Gideon has asked for proof. And he kind of outsmarts himself there. He asked for a dry ground and a wet fleece, but then he realizes that the fleece could have just soaked up the water from the ground. So then he asked for the opposite thing to happen, a wet ground and a dry fleece. Since that's naturally impossible, now Gideon's faith is reinforced. Similar to what I said earlier, we as humans want proof when we make decisions but God can work through it because God's a very flexible and powerful God. I'm sure you're familiar with the rest of the story. Gideon gathers 32,000 men to attack the Midianites with, who have 120,000, and then God says it's too many because if Gideon won it by brute strength, then God wouldn't be recognized in the victory. However, if he destroyed the Midianite camp with less people, then God would be glorified because that's physically impossible. So Gideon weeded out the men until only the best 300 were left. Those men advanced to the Midianite camp and rested just outside of it. And here's the part that a lot of people don't know about. God then sent Gideon to the enemy camp to scout it out. And while he was there, he overheard some lookouts having a conversation. One of them had just had a dream that a loaf of barley rolled down into the camp and struck down a tent, and then the tent collapsed. And he said that God has delivered us into Gideon's hand. What are the chances of that? That Gideon would ever hear that? It's just a God thing to help Gideon gain courage in what he had called him to do. Then after that, the Israelites attacked the Midianites by night. And it wasn't really an attack. They just blew horns, shouted, and waved torches around. That confused the camp, so they ended up attacking each other, all 120,000 of them. So then Gideon men, Gideon's men pursued their remaining men and princes. In conclusion, this just goes to show God's ability to work with our fears and doubts to accomplish his mission, whatever that might be. 
We might feel unqualified, too young or too old, or maybe something else. But like we see in the story of Gideon, God is patient with us and he will strengthen us. We just have to do our part.